Hello and welcome to the When to Jump podcast. I am talking to you live from Dubai, the United Arab Emirates, and I apologize for the scratchy voice. I've learned that is what happens when you go on a four-continent book tour in three months. And that's okay, because it was worth it. So, we are on the last major stop of the When to Jump book tour here in Dubai. And on this episode, we are taking you back to the first major book stop on the When to Jump book tour. Palo Alto, California, the night the book came out, January 9th, 2018, where I sat down with 400 folks in the audience, a sold-out crowd at the JCC in Palo Alto with Sheryl Sandberg, the Facebook COO and Lean In founder. Now, you may remember the first episode of the podcast was where I actually went to Facebook offices and interviewed Cheryl live, digging into her jump story. In this episode, you'll actually get to hear Cheryl ask me the questions around my jump and really go into the nitty-gritty around the book, the tactics and tools that we provide people to take off and make their own jump. What's particularly cool about this episode and what you'll hear about is towards the end of the event where we had questions from the audience. Now, this was the first time I had publicly taken questions on the book and shared kind of my blueprint that I provided in the book. And we heard from every type of person, from uh, someone who had just graduated college to someone considering retirement, and really went into the, the how around the, the, the purpose of jumping. The how, the when, the unsexy stuff, uh, we get right to it in the Q&A. So without further ado, with my scratchy voice here in Dubai, I am sending you back to Palo Alto, California, back several months, several hundred thousand miles of flying to the JCC with Cheryl Sandberg. Enjoy. Please join me in a warm welcome to Cheryl Sandberg and Mike Lewis. Thank you. I am a... So excited to be here, so excited to get to be asking the questions. I don't get to do this that much. And excited to be here at the JCC. My kids went to preschool here. Seems like uh, longer ago than it was. Um, But this is a great part of our community. Grateful to you, Zach, for your leadership, and grateful to all of you for being here. So this is an amazing book. And I'm not just saying that because Mike's my cousin. But the book, the book is part of something Mike is starting, which is not just a book, but a, com- but a community, and hopefully a movement of getting people to really think about what they want to do and why. And I know this is a community where everyone's doing that all of the time, so this is a perfect place uh, to launch this book. And I thought I'd start with our story, um, because it's so kind of quintessentially a jump that leads to so much. So our story together starts with two people who were living in southern Ukraine who did not know each other. One of them was Sadie and one of them was Gimple. And they were both children who were brought here leaving what was persecution of Jews in that part of the world at that time, coming here looking for more religious freedom, economic opportunity. Uh, They went to New York City where Gimple became employed pushing a push cart. He met Sadie. It was pretty common for people to... Uh, gravitate towards people from their same towns. They were from the same town but didn't know each other but met here. They married. They had eight children. They lived with those eight children in two rooms in a tenement. If you haven't been to the Tenement Museum in New York, run, don't walk. It's incredible. Um, It's actually, I think, a particularly important time to think about these immigration stories given the horrific treatment that people are talking about for current immigrants today. 
those eight children and two parents shared a bathroom with five other families of that size. Child number six was named Frida. Child number seventh was named Emmanuel. Frida was Mike's grandmother. Emmanuel was my grandfather. But because there were so many, there were eight brothers and sisters, there are so many people of our generation that Mike and I didn't meet until he was about 16 or 17. And so that was a jump, and it was an important jump that gave both of us the opportunity we have to be here, and almost everyone in our country has a story that's like that. Um, so then you think about the genesis of this book. Mike was in a corporate job, he was playing and he wanted to play professional squash. How many people here have ever played squash? That's good, <clears throat> very active. How many people wanted to play a professional sport? It's a big dream a lot of people have. What you don't see that often is someone leaving a job a few years out of college at Bain Capital and going on to a professional, a professional tour. And so when Mike was thinking about it, he started asking people, how did you know when to jump? How did you know? So part of the story that you share is someone, you asked a friend if your plan was crazy. And he told you it was, but he said there's a difference between crazy and stupid. What is that difference? In a, in a word, I think that is the, the theme of the book, is that if you have an idea that scares you, if there's an unknown you're unsure about, if there's some people that are doubting you, you're probably on the right path towards doing what you should be doing. <laughs> and I think a lot of people construe that for being a stupid idea. You know, for two years, I didn't mention the idea of playing professional squash out loud. I thought, who am I you know, to, to think of doing something like this when a lot of other people sacrificed to put me in this position? And then, as I dug into some of these stories, I found that there's actually a way to take an idea that might seem stupid and put in a lot of hard work, put in some planning, save up money, talk to people who have done it. And the idea goes from stupid to, to crazy, but there is a difference. And there's a framework in the book. It's funny, you know, the first 10 editors in publishing houses had no interest in this book, uh, which is cool. Uh, <laughs> it's like, you know, you deal with rejection one way or another in life. But I remember one person said to me when they were hanging up the phone, they said, if you're going to make this a book, you have to find a common thread. And when you read the book, the first story is about a karate school teacher who had a voice in his head. And I remember interviewing him three years ago. I was staying on a couch in Sydney, Australia. By the way, the three-month idea of playing pro squash turned into nearly two years. And uh, my parents were not exactly thrilled about that. <laughs> uh, each month, it was like, you're coming home yet? You're still on a couch? OK, call us when you're coming home. And while I was traveling. By couch, he means sleeping on other people's couches, not like a therapy couch, in case, yeah. in case that wasn't clear. Yeah, exactly. It's a good, good point to clarify. But this karate school teacher talks about a voice in his head. And then six months later, on another person's couch, not a therapist's couch, but could have been, I found myself in, in Tokyo. And I was cold calling another woman. And she describes a voice in her head about leaving a job in, in, a, in a nurse role, nurse practitioner role, to become a doctor at 39 years old. And she's talking about the same type of voice. And so what was fascinating to me and what really turned this into more than just an idea was that you can actually look at stories across you know, four or five themes, and they're tied together. So Jump not, not only starts as a stupid idea, but actually transitions into something that's it's actually doable. It might be crazy, and it'll scare you for all the reasons we've talked about, but it's worth doing. 
So there are 44 stories of jumps in this book. And there are, a lot, there are different ones, right? So tell us about one or two of your favorites. What's your favorite or one of them? Gosh, uh, that's like asking your favorite child. Uh, I don't know if I have one favorite one in particular. I think for me, it would have to be uh, this gentleman who became a photographer, having left a world of, of bond trading. And what I love about this story is that we all want to be a photographer, right? Like that seems like something that's at least interesting to me. Well, some people want to be a bond trader too, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. But it, the idea of, of quitting your job to do that, it's, it's mm -hmm. a big step. And when I interviewed this, this gentleman, he said, you know, what I learned in photography is that most of the hard work that comes into chasing your dream happens before anybody will pay attention. And that just stuck with me. You know, what we see, again, if we look around in, in the discourse on doing what you love and living your truth, whatever that may mean, uh, you don't see the steps one through nine. You see the step 10. For him, photography went from a hobby to something he did once a week, to twice a week, to after work, to taking a sick day here and there, to then saying, I'm going to give myself one year to just take photographs. And he said that year was the hardest year of his life. And he said, you know why? He said, because when you chase your passion, the actual passion wears off. Passion wears off in like a week. And you got 51 more weeks. And so what is that? Those are the 6 a.m. wake-ups. Those are the late nights. Those are saving up money to have one more nice splurge on an expensive camera. Those are not going out because you got to save for rent. And that photographer, if anyone knows Humans of New York, that was Brandon Stanton. He's the last story in the book. And as a side note, I idolized him when I had the idea, sleeping on different couches. I tried to get to him for months. And I said, I'm going to make sure this guy's in my book. <laughs> and one day, and again, this is probably quite creepy, but I guess it's the way social media works. I was on Instagram, and I was in New York, and there was a book talk he was giving. So I went to it, and it was so crowded I couldn't get in. So I, I waited, I went to get food, and I came back. And as I walk in, there's probably five, 600 people. They're all leaving. And I see him way in the distance. And I'm like, I'm going to get this guy in my book. And keep in mind, at this point, I'm still staying on couches, not as a squash player, but as an unemployed entrepreneur, <laughs> which is code. A lot, of those, a lot of those in this town. Yeah. That's why I moved to San Francisco. Everywhere else, you're looking for a job. You're in the you know, labor of statistics. And here, you're chasing your dream. So, you know. I was, I was chasing my dream, and I hustle to the left because I see him going left. And he goes behind a bookshelf, and I, I'm, I can't really see which bookshelf he's, he's, he's behind. So I just go far left. I say, well, I'll just try this bookshelf. And there's like four bookshelves. And I literally run into this guy that I've been emailing and messaging for like four years. And I'm like, Brandon, I love you. I mean, not in that way. But, but I'm going to make a book someday. Can you be in it? And he's like, yeah, you want to talk over meatballs? I said, yeah, I love meatballs. <laughs> so the next day, we go to a diner, and I interview him. And about three months later, I get a book deal. And I tell the publisher, don't worry. It took four years, but I got to Brandon Stanton. The publisher said, you know, Brandon wrote a book with our imprint. I could just introduce you to him. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I was like, you knew I was trying to get Brandon. Where was this? You know, I was pitching you. I'm going to get Brandon. Tell me, you know Brandon. Nothing. So there are so many different stories in the book, and they do have all of these different flavors. 
Are there common threads, common things people should know when they're thinking about when to jump, if to jump? Gosh, you know, I think that if you look at the stories as a collection, as a mosaic, they're just so different. You know, we have folks who, you know, were millennials starting companies to baby boomers trying to write a book uh, to single parents that were restarting their career. And what I found is that if you, if you follow this, what I call the jump curve, that those four themes of making a jump, and you put in the time, you know, these unsexy steps, what you form is this sense of agency. You're actually taking control of your life in some way. And when you frame it like that, I don't think that folks who jump view the outcome in binary terms. It's not this should work because of X or Y, or it won't work and this is why it won't work. I think every single person, and we ended up, or I ended up interviewing over the last five years, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people informally. And what, what I found was that if you, if you really are thoughtful and you go through these unsexy steps, yes, it might, it might not work. If you imagine the worst case scenario, it's never gonna be as bad, at least the folks that I've talked to. No one has said that worst case scenario is more terrifying than not trying at all. And I think we're in a time where people are saying chase your dreams, but you gotta pull it back. And, and the theme, if I was saying a sentence is chase your dream, it's going to be really hard, and most of it's going to suck. <laughs> but you should do it anyway. And I think most of all, you're not alone in wanting to do that. So one of the things I think you, you did really well is you dealt with the tough cases. So not everyone can afford to quit a job and be a photographer for a year or go on a professional squash tour. Not everyone has enough friends with enough couches all over the world. And not all the stories end well. How do you think about giving people advice when it may not end well? And how do people jump if they can't financially? So many people are struggling. Not everyone should jump right now. If you're married and expecting a child and you just got a job that will cover your mortgage, don't jump. <laughs> like, like, I don't know if that's like, like rocket science, but like, like not smart. But I think what you can do is you can plan for that jump. All right, we're going to do a lightning round, and then we're going to turn the questions. Mike is going to turn the questions back to you and then give you a chance to ask Mike questions. Lightning round, fast answers. Now that you've done it, hardest part about writing a book? Knowing what to do. I have no idea what's going on, even right now. <laughs> this is the hardest day, for sure. I hope you guys tell your friends, because I'm done marketing. So. Best part of writing a book? Today. <laughs> Most important thing you learned about yourself? Just not giving up. Favorite book you've read? I think Lean In was no, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> not my books. Favorite real book you've ever read? Um, you guys, option B would yeah. probably be up there. Favorite real book? Uh, either Shoe Dog, if you've read Shoe Dog, a great memoir on jumping from Phil Knight, or, uh, or Victor Frankl, A Man's Search for Meaning. Squash the sport or squash the food? We've talked about this. I <laughs> firmly believe I'm one of the best pan fryers of squash the vegetable. <laughs> this side of, of the Rockies. But, He's very uh, good. Favorite sport other than squash? I'd go with, with basketball. Yeah. Favorite memory from the court? From the court? Yeah, from playing. 
favorite memory from playing. Uh, I, I, I got into Dubai, into this big tournament that I had no business being in. And I, I got in at 2 a.m. the night before. Uh, and I ended up staying with a Filipino family who, who fed me and got me to the courts. And I made it just in time. And I ended up miraculously winning that match and then the next match. And I hugged the guy I played. <laughs> and I said, this is going to be a story I tell my grandkids. Oh, that's great. OK, question I always ask everyone. What would you do if you weren't afraid? What is your next job? Think about this, because Mike's about to ask all of you yeah, this question. True. And then you're going to have a chance to ask him a question. <laughs> so what is your next jump? In many ways, I think that the squash jump was, was a lot easier than right now. You know, squash was something that also checked some box. I got to play a professional sport. Now it's like, what is this community? Where is it going to go? So I think my jump is, is listening and taking in stories, and I want to hear yours, and I want to, to create this space. I want to give people that permission that they feel like they can take. And I think, to me, that is the most terrifying and, and also purposeful act I can take on right now. So. That's awesome. Everyone join me in congratulating Mike. Thank you. Now we're going to turn it on you and give you a chance to ask him questions. Yes. All right, let's yes. bring it back. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Who's got a jump to share? And a question maybe to ask, too. Oh, someone right back. A jump to share? Yeah, go for it. Uh, I jumped from software engineering to landscape architecture. Wow, <laughs> nice. How long ago was that? Oh, you know, it's, it's still in progress, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very long jump. Have you met people who made the jump and landed up there on their butt? I mean, they weren't able to complete the jump. It's funny. That's like the most commonly asked question. I think so it's human. You know, no, no, no. It's, it's human nature to go to the worst possible scenario. There's a great story in here. There's a few failures in the book. But one of my favorites is a woman who listened to all the advice of chasing her dream but didn't really think much more than that and, and landed you know, in the basement of her parents' home. Uh, and I'll let you read on on why that was uh, a really positive impact on her life. So. More questions? Oh, hi. Um, how do you deal with the risk factors and the fear factor and, and the lack of the guarantee when you start out? Because it sounds like you started, you didn't know where it was going, and this flexibility you had of dealing with kind of the tide as it came in and dealing with what came in to your advantage has been a huge um, piece of the success. So I'm just wondering if there's anything about that to add. So there's a, a funny story that we'll get to the answer. But we had a woman uh, who was a friend of a friend pre-read the book. And this was like two weeks ago. She comes in after reading it. And she said, you know, Mike, I got the book, started reading it, and I was about you know, probably 30 pages left, and I had a mani and a pedi coming up. And I walked in to get a manicure pedicure, and I just couldn't put it down. So you know what I did? I just got a pedicure that day so I could keep flipping the pages <laughs> just to finish it. And you know why? Because the people in the book, they talk about literally going into the water, into the deep end. And they describe how, you know where you start is a toe in the water. And again, it's not rocket science. But when you Google when to chase your dreams, and trust me, I, I literally did that. That's, if, if the answer in the Google search was, was, was comfortable and, and reassuring and real, 
I would never have started when to jump. But what you, you don't find is people talking about, you know, let's say you want to be a baker, uh, shadowing a baker for two hours on a Sunday morning. Still have your life, you still got your job, everything's set, right? You're just taking agency over those two hours on a Sunday. Then maybe that's going well, so you, you spend an hour at lunch, maybe not going out to lunch, you watch YouTube videos on how to bake a great cake. That's going pretty well, and soon enough, you find that you're tracking down your friend who used to run a bakery. So you've taken like the toe, and then you've got the knee, and then all of a sudden, maybe it's six months, maybe it's a year. At some point, you know the finances, you've saved up, you've baked a bunch of cakes. By the way, as many people say who are in baking and hospitality, sometimes it really sucks baking cakes. And you might find out that's actually not what I want to do. But I think when you talk about the blue water, it's scary because people think you're either in it entirely or you're out of it entirely. And you need all this permission to go do it. And so they say, well, my mom would never let me do it, or my sister would kill me if I did it. Well, and there's a woman named Laura McEwen in the book, single mom, 39 years old, decides to leave a marketing job to, to be a blogger. She said, you know what? I took a toe in the water and I stopped looking for permission. I just looked for support. So if you stop asking everybody to say, is this okay, is this okay, is this okay, and just saying, I'm gonna do this because I've spent a lot of time, a lot of unsexy steps getting closer to jumping, and here's why, I think the answer will surprise you. So. Hi, my name is Violet. Uh, I took a sabbatical a few months ago from being a full-time systems engineer to travel around the world and think about what would be a meaningful and authentic career path for me going forward. I just came back to the Bay Area just a few weeks ago. Is, so. it, is it not so much harder to come back from leave, you know, a jump than to go? <laughs> It feels amazing. <laughs> Good for you. So my question is, uh, this is actually something that I'm dealing with right now. How do you, um, so the friends and families who care about you and they don't know what's going on in your day-to-day -day life and the intention of you, you uh, searching or uh, taking the jump, you can't explain everyone what's going on and not everyone necessarily understand uh, your mindset and what's going on in your mind. So my question is, how would you answer the question of your parents asking you or your, your closest friends, like, oh, what are you doing? Are you sure you're safe? Is everything okay? How would you answer, uh, how would you calm them down? <laughs> yes, yeah, success has many, many parents and failure is an orphan. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. That's the hardest, is family, I think. It goes back to, to really reiterating the effort you've put into taking a jump. And I think traveling around the world is, is a courageous one, but, but so is applying for a different job or going for a promotion at work. And the only person going through your life is you. you know, we tend to think that everyone's watching us. There's this phrase called to sonder. Has anyone heard of it? There's this realization that you're living this complex dynamic life, but so is everyone else around you. you know, today was the most exciting day of probably of my life or one of them. And I go into a lift ride, and the, the lift driver, you know, he's got his own stuff going on. And your mom and dad, they want the best for you, but, but ultimately, you know what's best for you. Uh, and I'm not a, a guru and will tell you how to have that conversation, but I think if you plan things out, and we talk a lot about this in the make a plan section, uh, if you really put in the work, it's going to be hard to argue with, with why you're doing something. But a lot of people don't put in the work. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, my name is Ali Alcek. There is no question of how important is critical jumping is during your lifetime. Now you relatively young, and I heard you talking about one jump. Are you anticipating any additional jumps? It should become easier. <laughs> well, I think, I think once you, you know, again, if, if jumping is to have agency over how you live your life, you know, hopefully that you, you do take many jumps. Um, but jumps don't have to be professional. You know, some jumps are to get into a relationship and others maybe to get out of one that's seen its course. Some jumps are to, to have kids and, and where to live, right? Uh, if you look at the statistics on how we think about work, people will probably have five to seven professional jumps in their life. Uh, but I think it's important and it gets a lot easier once you start with the first one. So thank you for asking that. So we have time for a couple more questions. Yeah, um, my name is Harsh and so I'm a fairly young man. I like my job, I like what I'm doing. Oh, you can't be in here if you like your job. <laughs> no, so I, I like my job, I'm happy. I was living a comfortable life, but I don't love my job per se. Like I don't think about it every single second. I don't dream about like my work. I don't work more than eight, nine hours a day. So like I like it, but I don't love it. But if I want to jump, I don't know what I'd want to jump to. Like I don't know, like I, in a situation where like you don't even know like oh what what do you want to do for the rest of your life or like what what do you truly truly love? Is it worth to jump? And if so, how do I find out what to jump to? Like. Yeah, so I did not write that book, because that's a tough question. Um, I would say go to Muir Woods and take a long walk. But, um, no, you know, I think people get overwhelmed, and rightly so, with that question. Like, things are fine, but is this my life? And what should I go to if this isn't what I want? And I would say, you know, you should start with being curious. And then you should take a step back and say, how am I spending my time? There's a, a great story in the book of someone who started a gym. And he says this about fitness, but I think it's true about life. He says, show me where you spend your time and how you spend it, and I'll show you what your priorities are. And so if you just look at how you spend your 20, 16 other hours during the day that you're not sleeping, I think you'll start to see like, okay, well, I'm spending time researching you know, dinosaur digs. Maybe I want to be an archaeologist or paleontologist, whatever it may be. Yeah. And, and step back and say, this is what's interesting. I'm going to get a, you know, a little bit closer to it. But I, like, that's where I was, was, was working at, at Bain, being like, OK, I kind of want to do something else. And that took three years to kind of evolve to the point where I was ready. But I don't think, I think people rush to say, I need to keep moving, especially in Silicon Valley. There's like a taboo and, and weird stain if you've been up somewhere for four years. Well, guess what? You, know, you can have a 20-year career that moves you around the world with a company. And, and that's OK. That's great. So I, I wouldn't rush into it. The other thing I'll say before we do the last question is, um, is I really, truly want to thank everyone, especially the JCC, if we can give them a really quick round of applause. And then one more round of applause for my team, Amy, Brian, and Nicole for being here. So. Wonderful. One last question. Uh, hi, yeah. my name is Diane, and first I just want to say thank you so much for this evening. Given the number of people that are here and very few empty seats, it obviously uh, resonates with a great number of people. I actually jumped pretty early in my career. I grew up in Illinois and had a little voice that said, have an international career, which everyone thought I was nuts. 
and now I've lived in seven countries and traveled to 91. Um, but the jump I want to make now is after raising, you know, some kids that are now in school full-time and working part-time after taking a career pause is to jump back into the full-time workforce. And what I'm actually finding is that doing things older when you, you know, have these responsibilities or just are, are older than when I was bungee jumping, literally jumping, bungee jumping and parachuting in my 20s and 30s is, is harder. And so my question is, you know, what was the difference between the people that you spoke to based on their age? You know, I'm beyond having to ask my parents for permission. <laughs> it's a great question. I think the, the woman who is probably one of the older folks in the book, not that you're old, but um, you know, this woman, no, she had several different careers. She was an educator for 30 years. She was in her late 60s when she took her jump. And she describes the way she thinks about her life as having a ripple in the sense of if you know when a rock goes into water, you see the ripple in its immediate vicinity, but you don't see all the other things it affects. And I think the folks that I have been lucky to spend time with who are thinking of going back into the workforce or taking that jump, who don't necessarily have the, you know, the kids are, are gone and uh, the financial you know, commitments maybe have lessened a little bit and you can kind of think for yourself again in some way. You know, for them, it's, it's impact driven. Uh, you know, my friend who sat next to me at work when I sketched the cover page, you know, he passed away in an accident and I dedicated this book to him. His name's Corey Griffin. He's a legend. He started the Ice Bucket Challenge. To me, you know, seeing death that close at a young, much younger age than I think you know, I hoped, but it happened. You know, it makes you think of how much time we have and what you want to do with it. And I think it's particularly true as you get you know, to folks that have seen death more frequently and are dealing with their parents passing and other people. And it's not to be morbid, it's just a fact. So I'm not sure if that directly answers your question of the why, but I think if I was to guess, it's to say, okay, you know, what, do I, what ripple do I want to make? So maybe that's a good one to end maybe on. Maybe your next book is uh, when to jump back in. Yeah. Well, my dad always says ARP would love this book. He is, you know, he's looking to jump and he's done a bunch. But, but anyway, thank you all for having thank me. Thank you. Thank you, Mike Lewis. Thank you, Cheryl Sandberg. Thank all of you. All right. That will just about do it for the When to Jump podcast this week. Hope you enjoyed listening to the first event back in Palo Alto and the tips and tricks we talked about, not only in the interview with Cheryl from my end, but also getting to that Q&A and going into a little bit of the nitty gritty. Apologize for the raspy voice. Hopefully by next week, it will be gone. And if you are in the San Francisco Bay area, I am doing a coming home book tour stop April 26th, 7 p.m at the Books, Inc. on Chestnut Street in the marina. It's uh, across the street from the Beats Coffee where I wrote the first drafts to the book, so it'll be super fun to come back and do a little reading. Again, that's April 26th, 7 p.m. It's a Thursday night in the marina. We'll be very low-key. We'd love to meet you and, and sign your book, so come on out. And if you got a jump story to share or a tips and trick to tell us about and how you did it and what you did to make it possible to jump, we'd love to hear it. Again, that's a jump at mcmillan.com if you've got a jump story or a tip to tell people about. That will do it. My name is Mike Lewis. This is the When to Jump podcast, and I will see you next week.